Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Game Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Shippey. I'm so excited to have Graham on the podcast with me from Listen First. Graham, thank you so much for being here. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about Listen First and how you how you got involved in this work? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a, a scholar of uh, human communication, a, a student of human communication. Uh, I did my PhD work on um, interpersonal communication and health communication, particularly studying um, what happens when you're stressed out and you share that stressor with a friend or a family member, or even a stranger. Um, how does that friend, family member, stranger um, uh, react? How are they listening to you? What information are they um, either paraphrasing back to you or what kind of questions are they asking you or more often what kind of advice are they trying to give you? Um, and so my, my fundamental question in my research, um, uh, since my PhD is, um, uh, how, how can we understand better how people um, conceptualize listening as a supportive um, act? And how can we create better supportive listeners? Because we know that um, supportive relationships are um, uh, more important to uh, morbidity and mortality, even than smoking cessation. Um, and losing weight. So having supportive relationships are important uh, for all aspects of life. Um, Listen First Project, um, I was doing some consulting inside of organizations, helping organizations create what I was calling a Listen First culture and, um, you know, realizing that um, I was going to need to, um, if I wanted to do more of that work, sort of be be my own um, PR agent, if you will. And um, sort of reluctantly got on Twitter and, and, and Facebook. And one of the first accounts that I found on Twitter in particular um, was Listen First Project. And the things that they were putting out were resonating. I just thought it was so cool that someone that wasn't an academic and that had a um, sort of a mindset of, of changing culture was using this notion, listen first. Um, and so I met Pierce around um, 2017. It was a move I was making from one university to another university. Um, as well as um, Charlottesville happened, which was a pretty big moment, uh, pretty big catalyst in my life to think about what, what am I doing in my personal life to um, mitigate toxic polarization or the degree to which we dehumanize others uh, over um, differences that we might have, particularly differences in opinions or perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and around that time, um, you know, Pierce was... Um, uh, all, was working a, a full-time job in Charlottesville sort of um, motivated him to quit and go full-time and listen first. And what we um, sort of collectively um, discovered and, and wanted to work on was there were hundreds of organizations across the country um, that were doing this dialogue and deliberation work, that were bringing people together, um, mostly in person, but some sort of early adopters of virtual technologies um, bringing people together across difference, whether those differences were ideological, demographic, or otherwise. Um, and, and there were, again, hundreds of these efforts, um, and there, there wasn't as much of a concerted effort to um, uh, sort of collectively do things together, what we call collective impact. Um, and so we started to form an early collective impact network called the Listen First Coalition. The first thing we did together, what we called National Week of Conversation in 2018, where we had 130 some odd organizations across 32 states, including Boston Public Library was kind of our biggest um, contributor, but also uh, folks like Living Room Conversations and um, National Institute for um, Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona. 
Um, and, and it was a huge success by a lot of markers, you know, hashtag reach and all those sort of vanity metrics that you track uh, on social media. Um, we figured, well, we had something that we were doing together. And so we launched an ongoing effort um, to, um, to do that at least once a year um, around April um, to basically showcase the work of all these bridging organizations, these interpersonal bridge building organizations and the work that they did. Um, and um, uh, that's what we've been doing ever since is, is onboarding new organizations and trying to figure out ways to um, amplify their work, um, to aggregate their missions into sort of a collective push um, to change the, the public uh, rhetoric and the uh, repair some of our social fabric um, and to align those efforts around common goals that we all believe we can achieve given the kinds of political and other kind of um, you know, um, mess <laughs> that uh, that we tend to be in right now. So our North Star is toxic polarization okay. um, to reduce the dehumanization, not to reduce disagreement, not to make everybody sing Kumbaya or to bring everybody under some sort of common sense of, you know, common ground, although that can be an outcome. But fundamentally, it's about understanding the perspective of others, particular other, particularly the others with whom you disagree. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is important for all kinds of things in life, including in business. If you mm -hmm. want to know um, how to compete with with uh, other, you know, organizations, businesses, with your competitors, it's great to know, you know, from the horse's mouth, as they say, um, what that organization believes and wants to, to accomplish. So even if it's out of a, you know, um, self-focused interest, um, understanding the perspective of others, particularly those who you disagree with, is just advantageous. Yeah. Thanks, Graham, for sharing all that. It's amazing work. Um, great personal mission. I know that for me, the writing process, this is part of the series about um, helping people being seen, known, and heard a little bit better. And really resonates with me that, you know, we don't have to particularly agree. In fact, it's not about agreeing. It's just about understanding. And there's a big difference. And so there's a lot of nuances that I believe we we don't necessarily have time or um, take the time to clarify now in our digital communications uh, in the world. And it's extremely fast paced. And so a lot of those nuances get missed, but they're really important. Uh, when you were giving your introduction, you talked about the stress response and our ability to uh, listen when we're under stress or um, how that impacts our response. Can you tell me more about what that looks like for our listeners? Like what happens when we are stressed um, and how does it impact our reaction or ability to listen, hear others? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so um, to pick up on a couple of things that you said a minute ago, just to highlight um, for, for, for listeners, you said three words that I think are extremely important. You said agree, understand, and nuance. Hmm. Um, and the agree and understanding sort of go together. The point of, of listening to people, particularly those with whom you disagree, isn't to move either of you to a particular position. In fact, listening to someone who you disagree with can actually entrench you or make you more convinced that your opinion is the quote unquote right opinion, or at least for you, the, the opinion that you're going to, to take. Um, but but what it does force you to do is to understand that someone might have a completely different perspective and opinion and, and to some degree and, and for many um, issues, that's okay, right? It's okay. And it's actually part of the democratic experiment to 
sort of put those ideas against each other and let the best idea win. But we can't do that if there's no nuance, right? Which is that third word that you said. If there is sort of, if oh, you're a Republican, therefore, you're a Democrat, therefore, you're white, therefore, you're black, therefore, you're young, therefore, you're old, therefore. If there's no nuance and appreciation that you know, Republicans, there's a variability in positions. Democrats, there's variability in positions. And when you look at all of the different issues across um, that are that are sort of hot button issues, there's much more agreement ideologically on issues um, than the degree to which we have a high level of affective polarization or toxic polarization would allow us to 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 see or, or otherwise appreciate. Yep. So stress can apply in those situations where we feel the tension or the stress uh, or the um, the kind of um, anxiety when we are going into difficult or contentious uh, conversations. Um, it can sort of allow, uh, sort of force us to to put up, even if it's not sort of we don't do it consciously necessarily to put up defenses. Um, it's the same thing as if you go into a retail establishment and you know a salesperson's about to you know approach you and try to sell you something. It's 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 sort of that's a stressor, right? So stressors can be family stressors, personal stressors, everyday stressors, major traumas. They can sort of be precipitated by sort of approaching or trying to get into a conversation with someone that's going to be difficult. You know, they can be in your sort of shopping life when you when you don't know what decision to make and someone's trying to force you in a decision you're not ready to make. Um, and and it's it's not that we're um, you know we're generally controlled by our emotional brain anyway. Um, Jonathan Haidt talks about the rider and the elephant, and the rider sort of believes that he or she is directing the elephant, but you know the elephant really has control, um, and the elephant is that emotional or what's called um, you know a type one um, system, um, a very quick, intuitive, um, snap judgment, um, you know stereotypes and and other kinds of biases fit in that as well, um, and and our our rational brain, our type two system can override that. Um, but oftentimes, instead, what it does is just place a rationale on top of an otherwise immediate emotional response. So when we're stressed, that makes that even more likely that we're going to do that fight, flight, free, freeze, you know, freeze, appease, whatever typology you use to describe our reactions to confrontation or conflict or stress. Um, that in that moment, we, you know, we freeze and don't know what to do, or we just appease and sort of agree in, in order to sort of make that conversation go away. Um, we acquiesce or we fight or we're that kind of person that says, no, what, this is the moment that I'm going to stand my ground. But when push comes to shove and you ask people why they believe what they believe, a lot of the beliefs that we hold aren't things that we've actually thought through in a so systematic true. way, right? They're what um, others have called cultural truisms. You know, mm -hmm. brush your teeth twice a day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Why? Why? Uh, my dentist told me to. Well, well, did you read all the academic articles that your dentist was, you know, uh, trying? No, I didn't read any academic articles. I didn't go to the A, you know, I didn't go to the ADA to check out whether, you know, whether my dentist was correct or not. You know, um, you wow. know, I should get it. I should get this vaccine or that vaccine. Why? You know, have you read any of this stuff about why you should get those um, or I'm not going to get those vaccines. Well, why aren't you going to get those? You know, either way, sort of, we're sort of, you know, we're we're hunkered down and 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 almost tenacious in our beliefs that we haven't even sort of explored ourselves. And so the question then becomes, why are you so tied to a set of beliefs that you haven't even investigated yourself? Okay. Um, uh, and 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 stressful situations can sort of create 
in us a desire for whatever reason to double down on what we believe. Part of it is identity. So we get our identity from our beliefs. And if we feel like we are changing our beliefs, we're changing our identity. Like we can't be the kind of person we want to be. Yeah. We don't hold the kind of beliefs that our tribe tells us that we're supposed to hold. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I'm a conservative Republican, I need to be pro-life, pro-Second mm-hmm. Amendment, pro-free speech. And yeah. then I need to be anti all the things that the quote unquote woke left is. Yeah. I don't know what those are necessarily because I haven't really investigated them. But I know but I, I know, can't be them. <laughs> I can't be them, whatever they are. So whatever the left is telling me I need to be, I just have to push against that. And then the same thing happens. The left is doing the same thing, right, to to the right. So we're talking about politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so so identity can be a big part of it. And, and you see the same behavior in teenagers, right? They're trying to establish their own identity. They're pushing it back and you know, rebelling against their parents. And the parents are doubling down on, no, you must do this. And then you say, well, well, why, right? Why am I forcing or otherwise placing a, a perspective on my kids that I may have appreciated when I was younger, but may not necessarily work in the new environment that my kids find themselves in, right? So, you know, we, my, my wife and I had a pretty strong no social media, mm-hmm. but then we realized that my 14-year-old was really missing out on some really important conversations through Snapchat. I don't understand Snapchat. I don't want to understand Snapchat, but I do understand that that, that group of 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids, that's how they communicate. They don't text, they don't call, they snap. So he sort of said, okay, well, if, you know, if it's used for those purposes, then we're going to sort of acquiesce to that, even though we still have a pretty strong belief that social media is pretty damaging to the mental health of teenagers, right? Um, and, and so it, it, it was a discussion um, and not necessarily one that my 14-year-old pushed, but one that we had to sort of open up in our family in order to um, allow her to sort of be involved and be included um, in some of the things that she needed to be involved and included in. So it's just as one example of, you know, yeah. this isn't just about politics, it's about just life in general. When we feel um, that someone's trying to change us, we get yeah. stressed. Yeah. When we get stressed, we sort of don't bring the good toolbox. We we bring yes. the bad toolbox, right? That is so good. And I've been thinking about like if if we if we were able to see, know, and hear each other more, and not try to be changing each other, but just like letting each other be. Uh, how would our communications be different, and would it take us out of that place of stress? And so, my next question for you is: just How do we get out of this? How do we get out of this cycle that we've been in, operating from stress responses, and you know, maybe like clinging to our our comforts, right, or what we think are our beliefs? How do we start to how do we start to change that to get to a healthier place? Yeah, I mean, it's first and foremost a change in mindset. Um, you know, if I mean, how how much more freeing would it be if we went into conversations not thinking that we we're going to change somebody? Yeah, so much I easier. Mean, it's a lot easier, right? <laughs> like, and 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 to realize that change is is slow, and it's more likely to happen when people own that change, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And understanding where people are starting the kind of change you might see in someone that's starting way away from where I want them necessarily to be, that that, that will take time. It's not going to happen in a single, I mean, how many beliefs that you hold have you changed after a single, even hour-long conversation? Yeah. Um, not my fundamental, not the beliefs that I sort of keep as a core, as, as part of who I am. Maybe some, you know, aha moments where like, oh, you've defined this, you know, 
concept differently for me. So I'm going to see it a little bit differently that like good listening isn't just about eye contact. It's about a whole lot more. Okay. That's an aha moment. And you've changed my belief about listening. Th those are the easy shifts. Um, you know, where I might not be able to pull you it is um, over to the, to the side of, um, you know, listening 80% of the time and only speaking 20% of the time, right? You might, you know, say that mm, I'm not quite there. I'll, I'll give you 60, 40, but I'm not quite ready to give you 80, 20. I'll take that, right? I'll take that small shift and I'll see how that's working for you. And then I'll say, well, if that's working for you, how about 70, 30? And then if that's working for you, how about, how about, you know, you, you move you to 80, 20. And so inside of the realm of even more entrenched beliefs, you know, political beliefs, ideological beliefs, religious beliefs, beliefs about raising kids, protecting children, these kind of um, big national debates that we're having. You know, so the first and foremost is, is a mind shift. And I think one of the, you know, we have, you know, we, we have conversation guides for these bridging conversations. When you come in, you sort of, you know, agree that we're going to do these three things or four things or whatever. Yeah. One of my favorite um, reads, Turn to Wonder. Hmm. And so it's something to the effect of when you find yourself um, sort of pressed up against someone or another opinion that sort of rubs you the wrong way, that you just have a knee-jerk disagreement with, that you can't see as being valid in any way, turn to wonder, ask yourself, rather than asking, what in the world are you thinking? Um, ask yourself and perhaps ask the other person, what life experiences have you had that have created that belief in you that's so fundamentally different than the belief that I have? I'm really curious and I wonder, can you tell me about how you've come to that belief? And then you, and then you listen to that story, right? And you're listening to not just the position, you're listening to the person. Mm -hmm. You're, you're getting a sense that this is a person that, that has some similar goals and objectives and maybe some similar experiences from you, but maybe some drastically different sort of bumps or potholes in their life that have, you know, um, created in them a particular worldview that is divergent from yours. Um, and if you can understand from that person's perspective, you know, we talk about perspective taking as this kind of mental game that you just imagine yourself in someone else's shoes. That's not useful. Um, actually, there's research to say that backfires um, and it makes us more stressed. Um, but you, what you can do is perspective getting. You can ask people, tell me your perspective. And, and then you can actually fully listen without judgment about that perspective. And I think listening without judgment is a lot easier when we're listening to personal narratives, personal stories, personal experiences, mm -hmm. listening for the person, not necessarily the position. We can get to the position, we can get to a debate, we can get to a deliberation over issues, but it's going to be really hard to get there if we don't trust uh, the person that we're talking to, if we don't have some kind of relationship with the person that we're speaking with, you know, it's really hard to debate or deliberate in a really open and um, malleable way with someone that you don't know and don't trust. So you've got to not just know of the person, you've got to know the person. Mm, that's good. What does it look like to be known? Like, what does it look like to know a person from what you guys have seen, the work that you've done? Yeah, um, I mean, it looks different for different people, it's different for different organizations in terms of the methodology that that organizations use to to get there. Um, you know, for me, if 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 I'm going into a a, a situation or an organization or a, or a uh, a team uh, or a community where there's some kind of tension or some kind of underlying issues, uh, I'm trying to build the kind of trust, the very baseline level of trust that 
I trust that what I say in this space is not going to be used against me or to harm me. That's it. That's all I'm looking for. Probably out, out of the first even several conversations is establishing a baseline level that I can openly express my experiences and my perspective. And, and what that looks like is, is a lot, you know, sort of um, a first conversation might be completely about, first of all, setting sort of ground rules and, and agreements, but then talking about language and definitions of words mm -hmm. so that we can ground on what are the what are the what's the language we're going to use how are we going to talk about each other mm -hmm. how are we going to talk about ourselves and our positions and what are we not going to say or what is the language that we're not going to use right um, and um, there's really great examples of that there's an organization called essential partners that that does a real some has been doing really good work for for decades and they got their start in the uh, abortion talks, you know, abortion debates of the early 90s, late 90s. Um, and there's a really good story about uh, uh, that group and, and how they've sort of formulated their method. Um, and, it, and it's fundamentally about, um, uh, like you say, about seeing the other person as a person that has um, sort of a core level of humanity and, and it is deserving of respect, um, just like I am deserving of, of respect because I'm a human. Um, and then there's great examples of um, former white nationalists who now pull people out of that movement, not by pointing fingers and blaming, but by sitting with them and listening to their stories yeah. and understanding that they got into that movement because they didn't belong. And that community, as crazy as it sounds from the outside, that community gave them a belongingness. Belonging. Hmm. So if you can give them another belongingness that doesn't involve hating someone because of their color of their skin. Yeah. What these people have found is that you can pull people out by really sort of, uh, sort of, they feel heard yeah. and they feel like, Oh, the things that I'm espousing, I actually don't believe because I've never actually questioned those beliefs. I've just assumed those beliefs because of the kind of identity and the kind of belonging that I felt with this group. And so there's, there's several life after hate, um, free radicals, and then Daryl Davis and his work with the KKK are just really good examples of using empathy, compassion. Christian Picciolini is a, uh, a guy in this movement, and he's got a TED talk in the end. He says his challenge for you today is to find somebody that you think is undeserving of your compassion and give it to him anyway. Yeah. I love so it. I think that's where we start, is that mindset that the person across from me is a human a person first, and I want to seek to understand their humanity, their personhood first and foremost. I love that. Yeah. Uh, can you think of one, uh, can you think of an example personally for you that's impacted you while doing this work uh, or just a recent project, you know, of how dialogue opened up and um, how people were able to really practice listening first or, or how that's happened for you? And then we'll move to some key takeaways. Uh, that listeners can apply. Yeah, we, I mean, we've done several events here. Um, we brought in Braver Angels back in 2019 before the world shut down, like literally the week before our campus decided to shut down for two weeks um, for some in-person. So they did a red-blue workshop, which is a four-hour kind of intensive. You bring up to eight people who self-identify as reds and, and up to eight people who self-identify as blues. And you take them through a series of activities, one of which is called kind of a stereotype activity, where you sort of, you force reds to write down what are all the stereotypes of of conservatives that you believe are wrong and what's the kernel of truth in that stereotype 
and good. so across the board it's you know, racism is there homophobia is there um pro-life is there and gun lover is there right yeah. these kind of these kind of typical stereotypes and then then the reds talk through what's what's wrong about those what's the kernel of truth in those and the blues do the same thing and you get on the blue side sort of you know we're woke we're whatever all the all the different stereotypes of, of blueness so i've seen it there we also did a debate with students um uh, where um the the um uh, the guiding principle is that you there's a resolution and you've got sort of people for the resolution and people against the resolution. And when you're talking about the resolution and responding to, like if you're on the uh, a negative case, you're responding to someone who's just voiced their opinion about the affirmative case, you don't address them, you address the moderator. You say, Madam Moderator or, you know, uh, uh, you know Moderator, I'd like to, you know, ask you know, the gentleman, blah, 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 you know, uh, what does he think about this, that, or the other, and that removes some of that, we're talking about stress earlier, that removes some of that stress that I'm not sort of feeling, I'm not battling another person, I'm addressing an idea to a, an objective sort of facilitator who can then help me, um, you know, craft my language and, and, and help me ask the kind of the right question to, to help me understand that person's perspective better. So it's about um, exactly. th those two instances is about understanding fundamentally why people think the things they think about me because of the kind of identity that I have and, and what's kind of true about that and, and what's sort of you know um, not true about that. Um, so, so that that method I think um, helps uh, open a lot of uh, open a lot of eyes. Um, and then and then in, in some of the community work, some of the, the work that I do where we bring people through a series of conversations. Okay. Um, yeah. we we get we get this notion where, um, so I, I brought a, a group of leader, we brought a group of leaders together in a, in a town just adjacent here, and we took them through four two-hour evening sessions with dinner, and it was about building a sort of a, a cohort of, of leaders in the community who can start to hold kind of difficult conversations around issues that are important to the community, and one of the big insights uh, was this notion where, you know, someone sort of piped up after the second conversation, I said, it, and they said, you know, I've realized after these first two evenings that I knew of everyone in this room, mm -hmm. but I knew no one, I knew no one in this room. I didn't really know anybody. Um, and for a group, particularly of leaders in this community who were all about at the beginning, action, action, what are we going to do together? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They realized very quickly that in order to act together, you've got to be together. Yeah. You can't act together as just a bunch of independent contractors that that come together. Now you can, you can build a house, some simple things like building one house, you know, building one playground. You can do simple, you can, you know, change simple problems, but for complex problems, really sticky, messy, complex, nuanced problems, the first thing you have to do is come together in a concerted way, establish relationships. Uh, and, and that in and of itself is something we have lost a lot of, whether you read Bowling Alone or um, any of these other sort of books that, that show kind of the erosion of institutions, um, which is a, you know something that has been precipitated by the, both the right and the left uh, equally. Um, you know, it, because of the erosion of that, we've got to build new institutions. We've got to build new capacities. We've got to build new coalitions inside local communities who can actually have these difficult conversations and convincing people of that is really, really hard. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to bring people together to have difficult conversations. 
especially now with the way toxic polarization is eroding everything from families to workplaces, it's really hard to convince people it's a good idea to spend two hours with people who disagree with them. So sure. if you have any advice about how to recruit people to this kind of work. Okay, I'll think on it. <laughs> Definitely asking people to go into a place of stress and also step outside of their comfort zone. So yes, that's that's got to be hard. Uh, but um, I do believe that it's important. Uh, can you share some key takeaways or just a few principles with our listeners that they can take away from this episode that they can start so, to do right where they are today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so listen, if we're, if we're talking about, you know, how to be a better listener yes, or how to, how to sort of infuse your organization or yourself or your family with a listen first culture, I, I always talk about listening. Um, there, there's sort of, you know, I call them the ABCs of listening. So, so listening is, um, uh, simultaneously a complex set of affective, behavioral, and cognitive processes. Um, listening is not just the physiological um, element of hearing that the sound waves hit. Um, my eardrums actually sound waves hit our entire body. So even if you're hearing impaired, you can listen. Um, and there's really great examples of percussionists, sort of, you know, deaf or, or hard of hearing, um, hearing challenged individuals, percussionists in particular that are listening right? Uh, even if we don't sort of, you know, because they're not hearing our, our cultural says, you know, our culture says they're not listening, right? So anyway, so there, there's this uh, affective, in other words, the motivation to listen, the willingness to be open, the turning to wonder, the mindset that tells us um, that um, we ought to be open to other people's experiences and understanding, even if we disagree. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a set of behavioral components, which stereotypically are like looking, smiling, facial, all this kind of stuff. But in fact, there's multiple ways. And so it gets into the cognitive. There's multiple ways to be a quote unquote good listener. And that's dependent on the context. So to whom are you speaking? What are they likely to be listening to and for? And how do you then frame your message to best resonate with what they're what they already think, what they already know, and what they've already experienced, right? From a from a listening from a listener standpoint, is um, is not like am I a good or bad listener? It is is the way that I tend to show up, is the way that I habitually listen, is that helping me, um, you know, uh, accomplish the goals of this interaction, um, and is the way that I'm listening hindering? my ability to meet the goals of this interaction, um, as well as understanding that other people in the interaction have different goals. So if you've ever gone to a meeting and there's eight other people in the meeting and then you go and you debrief and then you realize that we just went to nine different meetings, you've had that experience, yes. right? That everyone is bringing a different framework, a different set of filters through mm -hmm. which they are hearing information. Uh, and so what I'm paying attention to and what you're paying attention to are different. Now, we can treat that as a problem to solve, or we can treat that as a, as a strategic advantage when we talk about cognitive diversity. Mm -hmm. If we can build teams inside families, organizations, communities that have a diversity of ways of paying attention to information, ways of listening, ways of thinking, ways of tackling problems and, and finding solutions, um, the best companies in the world, the Amazons, the Googles, they know this. Yep. Um, they know that the best teams work together in collaborative spaces that involve a lot of markers of diversity and not just skin color and gender, although those are important. But what those do, our gender, our skin color, 
we have experiences because of our demographic identities and our psychographic identities. And those help us to filter information in really unique and, and interesting ways. And mm -hmm. so um, it's not enough just to hire for diversity and then sort of you know, sit back. You've got to hire for diversity and allow that diversity to really infuse your organization, your team, your community with the advantage of bringing different perspectives, putting those perspectives in a space that we can sit in discomfort and then coming out of that discomfort with a set of solutions we can all kind of, you know, come together around and not leaving our differences aside necessarily, but sort of saying that our differences aren't going to define our possibility, but our differences instead are going to allow us to make better decisions. I don't know how many organizations actually do that, but the ones that I've experienced that actually do that uh, are stronger and better and have more cohesive teams and have um, you know um, stronger bottom lines and happier shareholders and all of the above. Absolutely, fulfillment. I'm sure much more fulfillment. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, you sharing all of your knowledge, all of your wisdom. It was very valuable, and I know it will be to our listeners. I'm going to link to listen first in the show notes. As we wrap up, is there anything, uh, any ways that they can participate, get involved if they are interested in learning more? Yeah, so when you go on that website, there's a link that says pledge, um, and that is a simple pledge. It says, I pledge to um, listen first to understand, um, uh, or I will listen first to understand, um, and, and that does two things. One, it's a reminder for yourself to make a commitment to you know, be open and turn to wonder, and secondly, it signs you up for our newsletter. Um, our newsletter comes out every Friday. It's called Listen First Friday. It gives you a, a tip um, or sort of an insight on how to be um, a, a different kind of listener. Um, and, and eventually when we start to announce National Week of Conversation 2023, um, we'll, we'll announce it through that email distribution list as well. Um, so we'll have some opportunities coming up in April of 2023 for people to practice the listening skills that they've been developing over the year in settings that um, allow for um, you know, diversity of thought and perspective and get um, people matched with others who might think a little bit differently than they do. Great. Thank you so much, Graham. It was awesome. Thanks, Lauren.